Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with myself, Simon Aiken. And I'm Keith Isles. And we're a couple of filmmakers talking about other directors' films. Absolutely. Yes, basically we, we, we've started at A, <laughs> we're going to go through to Z and then we're going to go back to A because there are obviously so many film directors out there. So, um, and, and give our humble opinions <laughs> as budding filmmakers and uh, fi film fans. So, Keith, do you want to let the audience at home know who we've picked for C? Yes, I mean, th th this could have gone a few ways, um, you know, a few sprang to mind, but we've actually gone with John Carpenter for this. So um, somebody who, from my point of view, has been, um, you know, somebody on my movie radar, well, pretty much for my entire life, I have to say. <laughs> so. Same here. Um, he is, uh, in my books, the master of genre films. And um, I first saw his films um, on video, VHS. Um, Escape from New York was the one that it, that got my attention. That was like, oh, who is this guy? But I do remember BBC Two used to uh, show Dark Star. They used to f show that quite a bit. Oh, right. Okay. And it was I remember when I was like, you know, a kid and a teenager trying to watch that. And I was like, oh, this is awful. Yeah, I love the bit when he surfs down to the planet, but I just think this is awful. And the opening sequence with the messages back home, what on earth is this? But um, as I got into filmmaking and watched it as a, you know, as a student project, you're like, bloody hell. Even if, even if the alien was really cheap. <laughs> what a big beach ball. <laughs> feet, yeah. <laughs> I'm much the same as you. Um, I got into John Carpenter uh, via home video and in VHS. Uh, I love these little trips down memory lane that we have actually. And, and I, I vividly remember, um, and, and a film that, that, that really grabbed me was um, my, my dad, as I said, used to rent uh, VHS films for us to watch over holiday periods and stuff. And I remember that we what he he again he let me even though I was quite young he let me watch um, Halloween, uh, oh, wow. which which is probably you know one of my most favourite horror films of all time because I think I saw it at that age where it really affected me, and uh, we actually I remember my first watch of Halloween was actually back to back with Halloween two which I thought oh, was wow. incredible because I couldn't <laughs> believe it that this film finished. And, and I was like, oh, my God. And then it started exactly where it ended. I was like, wow, that's incredible. And so... <laughs> BBC Two did that like a few years ago. And I remember that was the first time I watched, fully aware of watching Halloween 2. I think I had seen it before. I'd seen bits of it. But, yeah, but uh, I mean, the thing you noticed was the aspect ratio. Suddenly it went from, you know, um, anamorphic to widescreen. So it goes more for like film and it looks a bit TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's 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 fair to say, obviously, Halloween two, you know, even though it was written and produced by Carpenter, it obviously wasn't directed by him. Um, uh, it was Rick Rosenfeld, wasn't it? I believe. And um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't. It was more of a slasher gore fest um, film than its predecessor. But at the same time, um, you know, I thought it worked rather well. And uh, 
um, yeah, I always really enjoyed that sort of watching them back to back and treating it as as essentially one story. Um, so I remember that, and then obviously, as you've already mentioned, uh, I thought Escape from New York was was amazing, um, and and you know the fog and and kind of that era for Carpenter for me was um, was 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 really really great, and I mean. You, you know what an amazing filmmaker because he came from the independent um, filmmaking uh, background. Um, you know, wrote, produced, and directed. He got picked up straight from film school. I mean, Dark Star was his like thesis piece. When everybody else was making like a short film, he went out and made a feature. Absolutely. Film and you know, worked his way up. So he he was a writer. Um, he wrote The Eyes of Laura Mars. And also he was making these low budget features. So after Dark Star, it was Assault on Pre Precinct 13, which is absolutely, a, which is, again, a great film. I yeah. mean, um, well, it's a like um, it's like Rio Bravo brought forward. Yes. You know, and it, there's very much uh, touches of like Red River and other sort of cowboy films. Actually, I have to say in a lot of his films, you do notice this kind of like there is always the cowboy character. Um, I think when it definitely in the film that I'm going to pick for <laughs> my movie Heaven, there is you know there's a big cowboy character in it. Yeah, well, it, it, I mean it's fair to say that one of his you know whereas we talk about our heroes you know growing up and Carpenter being sort of one of them, uh, definitely one of his was was Howard Hawks and oh uh, hell yes, <laughs> obviously um, you, you know a lot of Howard Hawks's westerns and whatever I've sort of referenced. Um, in his films in, in, in one form or another. Um, but, you know, as well as being, you know, a talented writer and director, um, the other thing that totally blows me away with uh, John Carpenter is the fact that he's also a composer. Um, you, you know, uh, I know he associates with like Alan Howarth and, and various other um, composers on, on, on different projects, but, you, you know, a lot of the main themes and whatever to some of his movies, particularly of that era, um, you, you know, were, were done by him. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've often said that that's, you know, I, I tend to collaborate with Neil Myers, um, you know, on the shorts uh, that I've made. But, um, you, you know, it's the one part that, that I always feel I kind of know what I want, but I have no real control over because I don't understand music i know what works and what doesn't but i can't compose my own themes as it were and uh, i think you know the fact that carpenter does this as well and has done some amazingly memorable ones such as halloween and you know escape from new york and whatever is incredible well i think it's safe to say that he's had a hand in composing all the soundtracks to his films absolutely i mean even the uh, soundtrack to the thing sounds like it was composed by him even though it was Ennio Morricone yeah yeah no he did an amazing score on that but uh yeah no absolutely <laughs> I I just want to say though that though John Carpenter's career is is one of those where it had a, a real upward trajectory and it reached the peak and then it fell and so as as he he's at he started off strong and he just got better and better and better till he got to a pinnacle and I would say, I would say the, well, I would say the the high point from Escape from New York to Big Trouble in Little China, and then he started to slip, 
and you'll notice this in our picks for uh, for movie heaven, movie hell. But this is very um, true. <laughs> it's very true because um, our the films we've liked are from his first half of his career, and the films we hate are from his second half of the career. And I, it's one of those things that's always bothered me because you know it wasn't like was it that he didn't he couldn't be bothered anymore or he'd lost that magic he had or you know that the control that he used to have with these other films or the people he was working with was taken away from i don't know but it just you could tell the quality was slipping yeah no i i i would love to be able to argue with you on this point but um but i i you know i felt that as well i mean um you know i commented on another podcast certainly early in his career with with some of the independent um cinema that he was that he was doing um you know he had a lot of input and, and support from um the late deborah hill um you, you know as as his, as his collaborator and producer on on, on a and his ex-wife and, and yeah exactly they were in a relationship as well um uh, you, you know until he went off with adrian barbeau or whatever <laughs> <wasn't it? laughs> but uh, hey we're, we're not here to knock the man's personal life but you, you know um but but uh yeah I, and you know one wonders whether that had um something to do with it uh could, you know it's tricky. it's tricky it's tricky it's tricky making films is such a complex um such a complex thing with so many different people involved and in the sort of whole creative process that it's really odd sometimes to know you, you know why why some things work and why some things don't and it's not always about money because quite frankly when you look at him back in the days when he didn't have massive budgets quite possibly were his better films well it, i always think of uh, the other other director who always springs to mind who had a similar trajectory with his career as francis Ford coppola yes absolutely. because in his yeah. early career he made classics <laughs> i mean absolute full-blown classics the godfather the conversation and apocalypse now but after apocalypse now never the same he never quite made the same kind of films. No. Even Godfather Part 3 probably came the closest to what he was. There's some there's some bits in it that are just genius. But it's not a great film. No, I mean, to the I first mean, obviously, Coppola is another C that we could have, I guess. Or maybe FC. Who knows? No, but, no, um, it's a C. But, uh, but, but if you... Um, as you well know, I like my um, I like my uh, commentaries, and uh, there is a rather interesting commentary to what I think is a fantastic film of his on on Dracula, and um, in that he does talk a little bit about um, you know his career since and and the movie business today, or in inverted commas, whenever he recorded that that commentary, um, and and you know spoke about things like you know studio interference and money and marketing and and you know the fact that nowadays he, he just prefers to do his own sort of personal little projects and things but it's quite interesting but as, as i said i won't go too much into that because obviously <laughs> we're here to talk about not the great francis ford coppola but the the equally great john carpenter, john carpenter. yeah <laughs> well let's get into it then um actually for a change i would like to start Go for it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, 
sorry, I usually let you guide this, Simon. So <laughs> I, I, I don't have any dibs on it whatsoever. I'm happy to uh, to take turns or to, for you to go first every time. I I want to me. I want to start because uh, I have I want to start off with a great story. And I'll go this, for it. I do, we do like our little stories, don't yes, we? Yes, we do. So, yeah. But go, go uh, let, let me introduce <laughs> my pick by saying this. I was over in Orlando 2010. Wait. Yeah, at Spooky Empire. And I was at uh, the horror film festival there, uh, Freak Show Horror Film Festival. And they were awarding John Carpenter the uh, like Lifetime Achievement Award. Wow. So... I'd have loved to have been there. That sounds awesome. <laughs> it was. So the man was there, was he? He was indeed. Hey. So I, I had made some friends over there, um, two guys from Canada, and uh, we were sitting on the left-hand side of the room, and we decided to move over because we could get a better view of uh, when John Carpenter comes in and of him doing his speech. Can you guess where he sat? Oh wow! Really? He sat when we left. (laughs) Anyway, so they they show uh, a reel of his work, and my pick got the biggest cheer. And me and my friends, we were doing the cheering. And uh, my pick is "Big Trouble in Little China," or as John Carpenter sings it, "Big Trouble." Little China. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say uh, that was the first John Carpenter movie that I actually saw at the at the cinema, the pictures. Oh, okay. Up until then, I'd seen them all on um, VHS or television broadcasts or whatever. But um, yeah, Big Trouble in Little China was the uh, was the first one I actually went to the cinema to see. And um, I have to say, uh, yes, what an enjoyable. Uh, experience it was <laughs> it but is... anyway I'll, I'll let you continue i'm not here to steal your thunder <laughs> or lightning might be more appropriate yeah or rain yeah oh, no it's not rain. it's it's wind is it yeah it's wind thunder and lightning indeed it's very strange you would think oh well, wind and thunder they are two different things but there you go <laughs> so um I saw Escape from New York on VHS, and um, uh, it, was, it was a rental that I kept. We kept borrowing quite a bit. Kept bor- we kept going down to the video shop, and we would borrow it. And I, I just loved it. I love. Uh, I, ve- I was very much at the time into my kung fu films. I was into my Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan, and so this just seemed to be a great combination of the two. So you. Um, you know, it's a based on a sort of Chinese kind of uh, way of storytelling. Um, um, from what I've read about the film and the style, it's very similar to what Star Wars is to us. It is to the Oriental. I cannot remember what it's called. It's got a weird saying, spelling, and uh, I, I, I would, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to speak it very well. But um, Oh really? What you? I mean, you don't mean like the hero's journey thing or anything like. Well, that. it's 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 a, it's similar, but it's a, an Oriental version of that. Oh right. Um, okay. There's there's I, I've got it on Blu-ray. I've got the still case version from Arrow. Oh wow! And okay. uh, it comes with like a little booklet, and they were talking about that style. But the 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 thing I do love about it is that the 
Asian characters are up front and central, and the American characters are useless. so you've got kurt russell who's playing a you know john white i'm sorry john wayne type yeah jack burton jack burton (laughs) and he is like the loudmouth guy he is you know he's the american i mean there is a wonderful bit in it where he he goes is it me or does i just i don't know what's going on (laughs) No, absolutely. And like when he goes to break her out, he says he has no idea and stuff, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's he's like the stranger in his own land kind of thing. <laughs> he he really doesn't know what's going on. And um, he feels he's the hero, but actually he is the sidekick. He is the sidekick to uh, Wong Chi, which is the character played by Dennis Dunn, who's, who should really, you know, if it was made any other way, he would be the sidekick and Kurt Russell would be uh, the main hero. But it's it's Kurt Russell who's sort of, you know, really kind of blundering his way through it and never quite sure what's going on. He's, he's always the last person to know while everybody else, uh, in, even including um gracie law played by kim cattrall who oh my god lovely yeah she is um <laughs> back in the 80s she was hot uh, <laughs> <laughs> she was sorry I, i've watched it again recently and she's just like it's just every time she's on screen it's like ah uh. <laughs> she has green eyes yes <laughs> there's a lot of asian actors who are put up front and center i mean james hong as david lopan oh brilliant i mean a guy who looks like he's having so much fun uh playing the part i mean especially when he's in the old man makeup absolutely yeah he was, there's the two versions what is it the the old man in the chair and the and the 10 foot roadblock oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i i particularly love the bit when Kurt Russell goes in disguise into the brothel looking for a girl with green eyes and he's just like uh, hi there you know uh, I'm here to kind of you know he's like I guess what their version of a geek would be absolutely yeah yeah he's <laughs> yeah. talking about his wife or in the tie and all that stuff he's <laughs> <laughs> not a geek he's like the he's like a boring guy who's trying to be excited yeah <laughs> no I mean I you know I I I on well so far we 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 agree on most things notice but it, yeah on this I absolutely one hundred percent agree I mean mm. it was you know ridiculous as it was in many ways it is so entertaining um, that that it was unbelievable and yes a, a bit of a, a bit of a departure because whereas whereas um, Kurt Russell played the sort of cool calm collected Snake Pliskin in Escape from New York and you know sort of played it as a Clint Eastwood type uh hero, hero in yep. this yeah he, he sort of steals more from John Wayne but 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 does it very tongue-in-cheek as well <laughs> and uh, and it works for the piece great doesn't it um you well, know, exactly really I mean the, the the line that springs to, to to mind just now is everybody relax I'm here <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, it was awesome on the one-liners. It was really, oh, it was, really but it is, done. It, it's it's a style where it's very fast. I mean, it's it's about one hour forty minutes, and it does go 
it goes quickly. It I was really going to say, is, is, is it? I thought it was longer than that, but is it only no. one hour 40? It's certainly packed yeah. with stuff. Oh. It is absolutely chock a block with it. So that's why the dialogue's very uh, quip, quippy and off the, off the cuff, kind of. And why they do it is like, uh, you know, very quick. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually listened to the uh, director's commentary. Which had John I'm Carpenter and Kurt Russell on there. Thank you very much. And um, and it was interesting to that for them to talking because uh, John Carpenter was saying to Kurt that he was you know he was amazed how fully he took on that role because most actors wouldn't want to play a character who clearly wasn't the hero. You know? Right. It was clearly yeah. that he was the psychic who thought he was the hero, and you know I think he was saying a lot of actors. They wouldn't, they wouldn't want to play it because they want to be the hero. They want to be like, you know, like Tom Cruise is in all his films. He is the hero. He's always Tom Cruise in some disguise, unless mm-hmm. he's doing serious drama. But he's, you know, but he is the hero. You know, he's the guy who leads it. He's the guy who affects everything. While Jack Burton is just there, <laughs> you know, yeah. bumbling along. I mean, it's great that he is the one who kills Lopan. But as he says, it's all in the reflexes. I mean, it literally was, you know, he throws the knife at the guy and he, he misses. Yeah. You know, he, he absolutely misses. I mean, he does, it doesn't even get close. It's not like Lopan re- deflected it. He missed. And, he, you know, Lopan picks it up and he goes, nice knife, throws it at him. And he just catches it and throws it back. Reflex is no thought into it. He's not had any kind of effect he is along for the ride he is the psychic but yet he is so entertaining yeah i mean the bit when um they're escaping and the other guy is fighting them sorry i I said his name earlier now i've forgotten um oh wong chi is attacking the other guys yeah he's there trying to you know uh pull out a not you know pull out a knife so to help him and he throws the knife to the side. <laughs> I mean, when they get into the big fight, everybody's getting their yell bit, and he fires the gun in the air, and of course, all the rubble hits him on the head. He's that's right. Out. In, fact, in fact, that's one of the first things I, I believe that was in the trailer. Um, and I remember that's right. It was in the was. trailer. Yeah. Okay. I, I remember sort of thinking at that point when I saw the trailer, I thought, "Oh, this is something a bit different." from carpenter and russell you know obviously you know they've worked together on on several occasions by that point and um yeah it it was it was you could tell that tonally this was going to be something quite different to his other work but um but at the same time i remember it being you know it being something where there were so many one-liners that 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 you know me and all my mates we'd often you know quote a burton as it were <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> when that guy's got you up against the barroom wall and he goes have you paid your dudes yes sir the check is in the mail <laughs> <laughs> brilliant brilliant and and yeah yeah I mean a, a fabulously made film that one as well. I mean it, um, it looks amazing. I mean yes it does. Yeah, I believe it's it costs more to make than the thing. Quite yeah. I mean I'd imagine this was yeah. this was later. Um, I know uh, you know that one was produced by Larry J Franco who was actually 
you know Carpenter had work, first worked with him on the thing, the thing yes. as a production manager. Um, oh, okay. And uh, interestingly, though, this this uh, Big Trouble wasn't written by Carpenter, right? No, uh, it was written by the same guy who did uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that kind of figures. Yeah. <laughs> Is this this W.D. Richer guy? Is that him? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. He's He was the director of uh, Buckaroo Banzai, which if you haven't seen that film, do yourself a favour. It's great. Do you know, I'm embarrassed to say I, I'm not sure I have. I mean, I'm very aware of it. It's Peter Weller, isn't it? But um, yeah, Peter Weller and Jeff Goldblum dressed up as a cowboy. Wow. Okay. Do you know? I, I'm I'm wondering whether I've actually seen that, which uh, is as a as a sort of movie fan is is kind of an embarrassing thing to admit. But you know, there are, there have been a few over the years that have that have slipped by somehow, and I think that might be one of them. So uh, don't feel ashamed because I hadn't seen that one either until recently. Right. Okay. Yeah. That cool. was that was one that passed me by. I don't remember. I, I remember seeing images of it in like Starlog, but I do not remember seeing it on the um, on the VHS shelves. I didn't see it at the the rental companies. Nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, but it's it's a great film to find. Um, I'm not sure if it's on Netflix anymore. It was, right? But um, I'm sure it's able to be found on some streaming service. Yeah, yeah, or no doubt. I, I, I believe there's there's quite a nice um, Blu-ray or DVD edition of that kicking around as well. I'm sure I've seen it in the states. Thought, yeah, yeah, in, yeah the states, in the states, not not over here. Right. But um, did you know that uh, Big Trouble in Little China was originally written as a western? No, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> so instead of his truck being stolen, it was his horse. Right. Okay. Kind of makes sense. But yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know whose decision it was to bring it into the modern day. It might have been John Carpenter's. It might have been one of the producers. But, uh, yeah, it was going to be a Western. Wow. So it's hence why you've got a cowboy in the lead. Yeah. No, absolutely. And the other thing I remember particularly about the film, um, you know, and obviously, you know, I saw it at the time and I've seen it many times on, uh, on you know, video and stuff. And, and subsequently I've got the you know, special edition DVD. I haven't actually got that on Blu-ray, but you said there's a good there's a good version of it on Blu-ray, yeah? Yeah, so get the Arrow that. version. Okay, Beautiful. Arrow there's Films a version. really okay. nice uh, transfer they've done. Okay, but one of the things I also remember about that film was it had some really, really good visual effects by yes. Richard Edlund, yeah? Yeah, and, it still um, stands up. Yeah, it still, still works, stands it? up. Okay, yeah. cool. I think I only saw one wire. Wow, okay. Is that when the dudes the dudes take off? <laughs> no, no, oh. no, 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 no. They they were actually did that uh, by trampoline, right? It's very interesting listening to the um, director's commentary about how they did the those flying scenes. It was a you know combination of uh, trampolines and uh, rear view uh, projection. Right. Okay. I mean, they, they do have some pretty amazing. I seem to remember a, a sword fight <laughs> whilst flying through the Yes, air. that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Between um, um, Wonky, uh, Wonky, Wonky. Wonky. Oh, well, you know. If you're ever, 
If you're ever in Chinatown, check out this wonderful service at Wong Qi's. Wong Qi, he has a fight with, um, I have a look at it now, it's actually rain, not wind. Right, okay. (laughs) So we got that wrong. The three characters were thunder, rain and lightning, Ah, which makes a lot more sense than thunder, wind and lightning. It does indeed, yes, absolutely. Um, oh, I mean, I have to talk about Victor Wong as Egg Shen. Yep. With his um, eight demon belt. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still love the scene in the um, in the lift when they're going down and, you know, Jack Burton's going. He's got lipstick on. <laughs> no, no, no. That's when he's coming up. That's even oh, gra- right. That's even better. That was that was like a... Um, because Kim Cattrall kissed him and there was makeup on his face, it wasn't in the script. Um, they decided to keep it on, just as this great joke. It was. It's yeah, it was brilliant, brilliantly you know. funny. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Who's Jack Byrne? I'm Jack Byrne. You know, he's still trying to be cool with makeup on his face. <laughs> I'm sure he, I mean, he's not, he's not aware of it because Kim Cattrall has to wipe it off him. Yeah. But um, no, uh, Victor Wong as Exchange great and he brought him back such great use in prince of darkness yes which was another good carpenter film yeah. absolutely oh how scared the shit out of me when i was a kid i mean the whole idea of being evil being contained in in a container and being in some liquid form yeah and the the shots with the mirror with the the other world just being inside the mirror ah oh, still haunts me to this day especially the sh- last shot when the girl knocks um, the son of uh, son of Satan into the mirror, and she you can just see that last bit of light where she floats away. Right, yeah. Oh, creepy. I'm even thinking about it now. It's cre- creeping me out. Always good to have a bit of Donald Pleasance involved in stuff as well. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, it was amazing that was um, such a gap between Escape from New York to Prince of Darkness. Yes, because he had made um, you know quite a few films in between which had no donald pleasance in it oh the great donald pleasance sadly sadly missed along with many others but yes (laughs) so uh it's it's a great fun film i mean it undermines the american image of what a hero should be and you know and uh it's it's really stands up today i mean it's my favorite film of, of john carpenter's it's you know, if you're feeling down and you want to pick me up, that's the film I'll pick up and watch. Exactly. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. It, it, it's fun. It, it doesn't take itself too seriously. But at the same time, it's absolutely packed with action from start to finish. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's in, it's one of it's one of those films. There are a few of these that if I'm flicking through TV channels and it happens to be on, even though I've seen it dozens of times and own it on DVD and all this sort of thing, I usually stop and watch it <laughs> just, <laughs> yes. just because it's, it's just one of those types of films, isn't it? You know? <laughs> oh yeah. Let's get on to your choice. Cause I know we've got a lot to talk about. What's your pick for movie heaven? Well, my pick for movie heaven, and it was tough. Cause as I said, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of Halloween escape from New York, the fog, you know, that, as well as others but the one I've actually picked when I had to sort of sit down and think right what what is the one I'm going to pick for this 
I have actually gone for the thing. Okay. And um, there's a little bit, as there always is with me, there, there is a story, there is a, <laughs> there is a backstory to this. And, uh, um, you, you, you know, God, it's amazing doing these. I realize, you know, how I, um, how films really influenced and inspired my, my, you know, growing up and, and my childhood very much. Um, what I remember with this was, um, again, my dad was very cool with, with all my parents, my mum and dad were very cool with, um, me watching movies and stuff, you know, they, they used to talk to me, well, because I was always interested in how movies were made, um, they didn't really need to do that whole, oh, it's only make-believe if it's a bit scary and all this, because, you know, I kind of knew that better than anyone sort of thing, you know. <laughs> um, and I remember that BBC Two, um, back whenever this was, and I don't know, this was obviously sometime um, post-1982 when, when the thing was made, so it was probably several years later, it was probably, you know, around 85 or something, I don't know, maybe, maybe later. Um, the BBC Two did something really cool. First of all, obviously, B BBC Two would always broadcast, you know, as they still do without commercials. But they had a um, they, they used to do a season where they would have a movie and its remake played back to back over an evening. And what they would do is they would have, and I can't for the life of me remember who the host was, but it was kind of the equivalent. It of was. A Mark I know Lowe. who you're talking about. Yeah, it's like a, Alex Cox. Is that who it was? I was going to say. I know yes. it was like a film historian. I can't remember what it's called, and it's and that is bugging the hell out of me because I've talked about this quite a bit. Right. Well, I remember very cool. I was allowed to watch, stay up and watch it, and you know because it was on a, of an evening, maybe a Saturday evening or something. And he introduced, um, first of all, uh, The Thing from Another World, which is the, the Howard Hawks, Christian Nyby film that, uh, that, that, that obviously inspired The Thing, which, which itself was taken from a, a novella by uh, John W. Campbell called Who Goes There, which was written back in the 30s or something. And um, they played that film, um, you know, black and white film. Um, and... Immediately afterwards, they played, uh, they had a short introduction and then they played uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. And <laughs> I remember being uh, both, you know, excited and terrified by this film, but also absolutely just blown away by the visuals. Yeah, <laughs> blown away by the, the grotesqueness of this creature. Uh, you know, obviously in the Howard Hawks film, it was a slightly different adaptation and it was James Arnus essentially playing a, you know, a creature. It's a sort of man in a suit thing. It looked a lot like the sort of universal horror monster monster movies of, of that time. And, um, you, you know, obviously with the thing, the thing, John Carpenter's the thing, um, he employed the services of uh, the great Rick Botin uh, to do the, um, uh, you, you know, special effects. And, um, uh, you know, it was just it just looked incredible. And I, I watched it uh, in preparation for this. I did actually um, watch it again. And, you know, OK, the effects at the time, they were they were makeup stroke animatronic animatronic effects. Yeah. But, you know, the design was was very cool. And you know, on the most part, they, they, I would say they hold up today. 
Um, they do indeed. I've actually seen the thing on the big screen. I went to a John Carpenter all-nighter. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I went with our fellow filmmaker, Clive Ashenden, and we saw Halloween, The Thing, uh, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, The Fog, and They Live. Oh, my God. That sounds like movie movie heaven night to me. <laughs> it was, apart from The Fog. I'm not a big fan of the really? fog. Really? Oh, I do like. Yeah, the it's it's. Don't yeah, like the remake, of... but I do like the. Fog. <laughs> <laughs> but it was one of those films that um, also we could have done with showing that one a bit earlier because they sh- they put that near the end. By the way, I realised I said Rick Botine. I meant, of course, Rob Botine. I'm so sorry. Okay. Yes, uh, for my for my, and also some some work done by Stan Winston as well, who we've mentioned on previous co- podcasts. The the creature itself is just so horrifically beautiful. Yes, they are like modern sculptures. I mean, the two faces converging together, but stretched out in this, you know, really rigor mortis grin horrible yet fascinating the um the the dog thing when they interrupt the the thing taking over the the dogs and you see this sort of these arms break out and the big eye and then the i always thought it was a flower that pop you know that bursts out they're all the dog's tongues with dog's teeth on them yeah, but but in a sort of flower shape. Yeah, in a sort of yeah. um praying and also <laughs> and also when Blair is doing the autopsy on it, and you can see like the dogs that were really misfigured with the teeth, all off in different directions, and ah, oh, just you know, just horrible stuff. Yeah, beautiful wow. at the same time. No, absolutely. I mean, absolutely work of art, and it is. I mean, it's mainly um. Rob Botine, uh, Stan Winston yeah. came in to help with the uh, with the dog effects, just because they were sort of pushed for time um, on that, and 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 he gracefully admits that that it was it was really um, uh, Rob's show, who was very young at the time. He he, he was only sort of in his about twenty two years old, and uh, he the only film he'd done before was was The Howling. Um, That's right, yeah, and uh, obviously. Um, Carpenter had seen that and was quite impressed and and he was a big Carpenter fan of you know Carpenter's other work and and uh he, he apparently made himself quite ill making it because he, he did he lived at the up. studio yeah exactly he worked like round the clock for, for weeks on this stuff but I think you can see it's a labor of love because as I said the um the, the the finished work uh and the way they did it i mean the, the, again you know this was pre-cgi and all this sort of thing um it was all animatronics and makeup and puppets and things of that nature and you, you know it, they they really used their imagination um you, you know to do this using a, a guy who was actually an amputee for for the scene where the uh where the arms get um chopped oh off. uh dr and, copper and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and they he actually made a mask of the actor in pain as well to put on him. That's right. So that's right. So it's just it's just the one shot as well. It's the wide shot. So because then it cuts to a close up of the actual actor screaming. With of course you can't see his arms because it's a close up. Yeah, and it's just it's just so well. Now this is the thing about the thing <laughs> was that John Carpenter had uh, a break in between filming this. Um, what was the one before it? It's Escape from New York, isn't it? 
Yes, it was. I believe. Was, yeah. yeah. Um. He he had he, a he had a he had a, a year's build up to filming the thing. Yes. And so he could plan it out really well. Yeah. He, and you can he see said that. It's, he said it's the most prep he's ever had. Um, yeah, yeah. This is also, in in Carpenter's own opinion, the best film he's ever made. Um, and and that's true. It's it is a classic. Yeah. It's an absolute classic. And the thing about it is that when you watch it, you it, it doesn't spoon feed you stuff. Um, so we we now know who were the thing and who wasn't the thing. But the first time I watched it, did you think that... Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the... You know, oh, Clark, the dog hand. Yes. Yeah. Did you think he would been taken over by the thing? Because I surely did. Yeah, I surely did. I could not guess who the who the who was the thing and who wasn't. No, I mean the reason the film worked so well is because apart from obviously you know we we wax lyrical here about the the amazing uh, animatronic effects and things that they had, um, but also I mean in terms of direction and writing and things of that nature, the 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 the, the sense of um, paranoia. Um, that, that that was built during it was 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 really well done and, and as you've already you know credited like Morricone's music um yeah. you, you know it, it it's really solid and it works and I mean he, t- he took you know he off he obviously was a big fan of, of Howard Hawks as we've already mentioned and of the original the thing from another world which which he used you know, on the TV screen in Halloween. And That's uh, right, yeah. it, it, in fact, in 2007, they released this really good double double DVD of it where um, uh, Carpenter actually does a commentary on the original film. Uh, oh, nice. Film, which is actually pretty good. Um, yeah. Oh, I imagine that that'd be great because he, he, he loved that film. He and did. The thing, the thing he did wonderfully was, yes, he went back to the original source of who goes there absolutely yes but he also brought in stuff that he loved from the original now i've seen the original as well i've seen it recently because it was shown on bbc2 and there's stuff in it that works really well and there's some stuff that's really hokey i mean the fact that it was a big carrot monster (laughs) (laughs) and you know because and there was none of that paranoia because it was a separate entity yeah uh and they just kept hiding in the um the agricultural part of the <laughs> the base. Also, there was a woman involved, and it was very you know that kind of nineteen fifties stuff. But wonderful ending with about watch the skies. Yeah, no, absolutely. You never know. Absolutely. But the things he kept was the the words burning into the screen. Yep, the simple title effect, but very That's effective. It. Yes, absolutely. With we see the ship crashing, which I always think predator nicked for the opening of their film it's very similar isn't it it's it is, very similar very yeah similar. No, I've similar yeah that. and um i was but i know they put that at the beginning of predator because they wanted to show that there was this science fiction bit because i mean you don't see the predator for, for a long time after you, the film starts it if if it didn't have that bit at the beginning you think it was a just full on action yeah, film, yeah sci-fi action movie film. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. and also the um seeing the ship in the ice yeah and the block yeah which he, he used um uh oh the guy's awful that i can't remember his name but he used the guy the matt artist who did all of the uh oh uh, whitlock that's it yes whitlock. yes whitlock yeah. whitlock for, yeah. for that um which uh again 
um, you know, he basically had the prep time. He surrounded himself with, with the good people. The this was his people. first sort of, if you like, bigger studio uh, movie out, of, out yeah. of everything he'd done up to that time. Um, you know, great sense of paranoia. Um, you know, it works. And, and you know, I, as I said, I watched it literally a, a few days ago, about a week ago or whatever, in prep for this. And, you, you know, it's one of those films, again, that I can watch over and over and over and really enjoy. Uh, the, the, only, the only bit that, because um, obviously all the effects work and the stunt work, you know, people on fire with flamethrowers and all this, all absolutely wonderfully done. The only thing that always cracks me up <laughs> is the bit when the guy's set on fire and he bursts through the wall, and you can clearly oh, see, yeah. it's see it's a stunt wood. man. And you think, yeah. oh, no, this is supposed to oh, be no, no, no. That's, that's the thing that doesn't get me, <laughs> is the fact that it's a really poorly made um, monster mask, and it's clearly a stunt man. Because, yeah, because it, it went from being like, I don't know, it's like a crocodile's head, isn't it? Yeah. It grabs Niles and chomps down onto his head. Not Niles, um, windows. Yeah. Yeah, he, you know, he chumps down on, and and then when you see him, it's kind of looking like how it did when he first started changing. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, I'm, I'm not taking anything away because you you know that work is, no, is so well no. done and those stunts. No, are so it's, dangerous, I mean, also but... the stop motion kind of makes you giggle a little bit. I mean, basically, and and again, hats off to Carpenter for making this decision. Is obviously a lot, a, a hell of a lot of work went into. Um, the, the, the stop motion animation scene that was going to be towards the end of the film. And yeah. um, he, because on watching it, even though it was incredibly well done by those craftspeople that did it, you know, it was, you, you could, you know, you could tell it was, it was stop motion and there was no way of smoothing it out with, with CG like you can now. It wasn't just that. It was also kind of scale and everything. Yeah. Kind of... So he decided to, to, to yeah. not include it in the film. And I think, you know, um... well, he included parts of it, but he didn't, he didn't have the whole creature because it was sort of, I, f there's only a couple of shots that stop motion and then the rest is an animatronic. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, it, you know, in the the film works great, and um, you you know, of course, uh, it did it did spawn a a um, sequel graphic novel by Dark Horse, which that's right. I, yes. Funny enough, because I was because because when I tend to do these, I sort of completely immerse myself in the world, and um, I looked on um, Amazon or whatever to see if you could get these graphic novels, and and they're they're going for about a hundred and seventy quid. <laughs> They're obviously quite rare, <laughs> and I'm sadly I haven't read them. <laughs> I remember when they came out; they were Dark Horse comics, and unfortunately, I didn't buy them. Um, but I, I do remember the sort of the covers, especially the guy whose he his face is screaming as he's been pulled back by a thing. But um, did you have you seen the alternative ending? Where it's, uh, what the one where he he um, he's sitting he basically... he's, he's sitting in a chair and he's being debriefed. Yes, yes, that is on the that's on the extras on the um, yeah. on the Blu-ray. Yeah, not quite the same, is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the Hollywood ending, yeah. but I kind of like the bold choice to go with the the dark, ambiguous ending that um, that he decided to go with, and I think I think absolutely that was the right choice. You know, did you ever play the video game? I didn't, no, right. sadly. Uh, um, I did. I'm not really a gamer because <laughs> I'd never leave the home. <laughs> the, the game sort of takes place 
um, directly after the film finishes. So there's a like a marine troop, and they turn up and they're, they're trying to find out what's happened to the base, and they they see all the damage and everything. And then there's another base, another military base, where they're trying to um, keep control of the thing and you know turn it into a weapon, which is the usual thing that a lot of um like the comic books done um with the alien comic books they did a similar story right. where newt and hicks were on earth and right. um yutani was trying to turn uh, the aliens into weapons and they they go back to lv426 in the second series and there's like a military base there where they you know are trying to tra- train the aliens into being weapons for them, very much like um, Day of the Dead. Right, okay. But yeah, with the the game, at the end, when you're fighting the big monster boss, um, McCready turns up in a helicopter. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> Which is the point I was trying to get to. <laughs> right. The long yeah. way round, but yes. Um, the game was, it was interesting uh, for the time. Uh, I was PlayStation 1, I think, or PlayStation 2. Um, I remember kind of enjoying it. I remember the artwork for it. Yeah, because the artwork became the DVD cover for a while, didn't it? And that was like, what the fuck? It did. Yeah, yeah. On a sort of re-release, yes. Yeah, because the um, the Struson poster is brilliant. Yes. No. Absolutely. You you can't you can't beat that one. The Drew Struson poster is absolutely amazing. And it just it is just a silhouette of a guy with light coming out of his face. Yeah, wonderfully ambiguous, um, but at the same time, a really memorable image, which is exactly what a poster should do. Um, intrigue and, and stick in the mind. I, I wanted to talk about the structure of it, because the, the, yes, the, the, the structure of the story is really well done. Because what it is... is Everything it's very logically done. So the dog enters the base and they they, they don't know about the thing. They go and investigate the Norwegian uh, camp and they find all the damage that's been done and they find what was left of the block of ice. Then they go back and they just in then they discover by accident the thing trying to take over the animals. So then they you know they investigate. And they find out more about what this entity is. And then as they start to, when they uh, takes over, uh, I think it's Bennings, the guy who gets shot. Mm-hmm. Remember when they're clearing out one of the storerooms and he gets taken over and you see him sort of, they start realizing that maybe one or two of them may be the thing already. That's when they try and do the blood test. And that's when it gets thwarted by the thing. Well, it's like you said as well about the the very clever foreshadowing, which which was a misdirection where, you you know, the guy that looks after the dogs, Mm. um, you have that wonderful shot of the dog going all around the camp and ending up going to his room. And there's the shadow. Ah, It's not his it's not his room. No, it's not going going back. It's um, it's Palmer's room. Yeah. Yeah. Is it Palmer? Um, Hold on. I forget their names, actually. No, Norris. Norris, Norris Palmer's the one who he turns into the thing when they're strapped to the chair. That's right. Palmer's the one that's slightly, you know, he's he's mad to start with. Yeah. 
anything, he's he's like the Murdoch character from the A Team. <laughs> he is just a bit, isn't he? Um, but yeah, everything it just sort of it everything has a very natural progression. David Clennon, the actor, yeah, yeah. David Clennon's character, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But yeah. It, it's it's Norris, the guy who has the heart attack, whose chest bursts open because mm-hmm. they have there's such a perfect um copy so you know and then when when norris you know attacks if the thing attacks them when they're trying to re- resuscitate him and you see the head pull off then then real and then you know then mccready then realizes that the thing is all one entity and that's where he comes up with the blood test and then they have to you know once they find out who's the thing in within their little group then they have to go and check Blair, and that's when they discover that Blair has been has been turned into the thing. And I think he got he was actually infected very early on because you always see his pen going into his mouth after he touches the, the bodies. Yes. So I think he he got slowly taken over. And one of the things they do really well, I mean, in terms of filmmaking and 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 you know whatever the the bit where the blood tests, um, you know, the paranoia and tension. that's created in that scene um you know is really really well done yeah really really good Uh, (laughs) i mean that scene starts off with him killing clark charles doesn't believe that he would kill somebody yeah and he's you know pushing mccready and clark has sort of seen his chance to sort of take mccready out and he's slowly sort of sneaking up on him and when charles backs down that's when he sort of takes his he goes for it and mccready reflex again shoots him <laughs> it's all in the reflexes but yeah i mean we were all convinced that he was he was a thing no absolutely it creates tension Re- tension and paranoia is is really well done um visual effects are beautifully done uh it's well acted um it, you know it's wonderfully um you know setting it you know having the setting in the sort of you know outpost 31 station you know being really remote um you know, gives you that whole, you, you know, feeling of, of claustrophobia and being trapped in one place. And, uh, yeah, I mean, y- y- you know, it ticks all of the boxes there. Um, you know, and I like the bold decision as well to sort of not have any female characters in it and sort of make it this 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 completely male-orientated um, story. You know, uh, Carpenter decided to do that quite early on. And... Uh, the, the only female voice is the uh, the chess game thing, at the, which is <laughs> which is Adrian yeah. Barbeau does the voice of that as, as a little bit. Of oh, okay. It, but, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he likes doing that because the voice at the beginning, definitely of Escape from LA, and I think from Escape from New York is uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant. <laughs> I know you're a fan of the prequel sequel. Okay, I'll let you go first. <laughs> okay, well, uh, absolutely, really unnecessary. Um, it, yeah, I know they try to do this thing where it's like, oh, look, you know, we've gone back to the original to John Carpenter's the thing, and we've we've looked at all the footage of them in the Norwegian base, so we try and replicate those things that happened, but then. I remember watching the film and I think there was one or two things I thought were pretty good, but the rest of it was a bit, they, it seemed very rushed. The thing would 
not attack from a defensive point or when they were alone. It just literally go, oh, it's time to attack now. You know, stupid things like they were in the helicopter taking off and suddenly the guy starts thinging out. And you're just like, ugh. And that's the fact that they had done practical effects for it and then replaced them with CGI. And it's like, what the fuck? Why? What? What? And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen the original practical effects. They were really they were good. good. Yeah, no, absolutely. Why the fuck did they put CGI all over it? I don't know. And um, and then, of course, the end title sequence where they connect that film to um, the, John Carpenter's The Thing. Now, I know you like that. I don't. I felt it was very tacked on. It was kind of like an afterthought because the helicopter you see at the beginning of John Carpenter's The Thing just flies down and then the guy runs out who I believe was actually attacked by The Thing. So it's quite possibly The Thing chasing the dog, which, you know, so The Thing is chasing The Thing in from what I can tell. And... Uh, I'll say the only thing I liked was when the first first guy gets attacked and they stop it and you can see him being digested. Uh-huh. I thought it worked really well. The stuff with it not being able to absorb metal, like fillings and stuff, I thought was, oh, God. <sighs> yeah, okay. You had you couldn't do the blood test, so you had to come up with something else, which, uh, and yeah. I, I, was, I wasn't a big fan of it to start with. I thought it was a really bad idea. And, uh, yeah, I've coming out of watching that film and I've seen it twice now. And each time I just, uh, leaves a bad taste. In my Fair mind, enough. You know? I mean, you know, um, uh, as I said, we always, we always agree on most things, but you know, this, this is, this is one area where I do have to disagree with you a little. However, I know where you're coming from. I mean, um, the, the, the big pro obviously they, they did a, for anyone who's listening to this, who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about. They basically did in 2011, they did a prequel um, film to The Thing. Now, this had been in development hell for some time. Um, originally, uh, the great Ronald D. Moore of Battlestar Galactica fame was attached to this and had done a, um, a, a script and whatever, which, you know, he departed the project and it got later got rejected and whatever. Um, and I think some of that may have gone into his TV show, Helix, which is also set in a in a uh, you know remote arctic um station and stuff but uh um you know the, the big problem with this film is and 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 by no way does does it even you know come anywhere close to the the greatness of john carpenter's the thing okay because the big problem with this film is what they've decided to do is tell us the backstory the norwegian story and the trouble with it is, is straight away, you know that pretty much everybody's going to die, um, you know, before the film even starts. You know that you know where it's going. So that so obviously in terms of suspense and drama and whatever, it's a bit flat because you kind of know this already. OK, what I, what I do like about it, though, and what I will um, sort of defend it on um, is in terms of the production and, and the filmmakers, um, you know, they they were very respectful to Carpenter's film, and you know that there are there are many references, you know, to kind of tie it in with the film. You know, the two face where where the two face creature comes from. You know, the 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 ice axe in the um 
in the wall of the Norwegian camp, you know, all of that stuff. You know, they've been very good at doing all of that. Um, but essentially, the film is kind of a remake. Uh, you know, the same sort of thing happens. And uh, like you said, they, they did do some very good um, animatronic work. Because what I did is I watched... I watched this and then John Carpenter's thing back to back. So I watched this as a prequel. And as soon as the credits come on, I'm very sad. I need to get a life, I know. But I'm very sad. And then I put John Carpenter's thing in and carry on, right? And, and you know, in terms of, you know, the things I like that they've done about it, um, as Cameron did with Aliens, uh, they've done with this in the fact that the continuity is spot on. You know, it's set in 1982, um, they haven't tried to do, you know, they haven't tried to mess with the timeline and do a sort of, you, you know, contemporized prequel or anything stupid like that. So, you, you, you know, it fits in. Um, they've done something different in, in the fact that they've got a female hero in this uh, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who does a kind of she's doing a sort of Ellen Ripley type um, female hero. And they go into a little bit more of the backstory about the ship and you know how how they got the creature uh, how the creature got out of the block of ice and um you know a little bit more the only problem with it is kind of in the last act it sort of turns into x-files fight the future <laughs> <laughs> it does and the, and they go into the ship and and you, you know i i kind of obviously prefer the mystery of that rather than kind of trying to give us all the answers and reveal it and apparently they had originally shown the pilot okay and um right you know the, the pilot that had the that, that was you know piloting the ship that obviously had the the thing um on on board and they decided to do away with it so they end up replacing it with this kind of tetris like graphic thing which doesn't really particularly work um so, so yes, I've got issues with it, but overall, I don't hate it. Another issue I have is the fact that the Norwegians blew up the spaceship in the thing, in John Carpenter's The Thing, the Norwegians blow up the spaceship. Yet, so how in the prequel can they well, go no, into well, the spaceship they, that was no, what they do no, no, they seriously, seriously, no, 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 no. Basically, it's completely buried under the ice, and what they do is they blow the 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 ice off that's above it which reveals it which is how you see it in the matte painting in 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 um john carpenter's film if that makes sense they just they just surround it and they set the charges to blow the ice no 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 i i tell you why because there is a shot before you see the explosion they've actually uncovered part of it and they place thermite charges on top of the ship and also one of the characters said they blew it up. Because what, the, what they're doing is they're, they're trying to, the stuff that you see on the video in, the, in Carpenter's The Thing, they were basically recreating what you see on the Norwegian videotapes, yeah? Which is where they, they find the ship under the ice, but they blow the ice layer off to get access to the ship. And then they notice the, 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 the guy in the block of ice, which they, they take back to the camp. The other thing as well is that in the prequel, it's not uncovered. It's in it's quite low down. It's like yes, in a chasm is, yeah. with ice on top of it. Yet in John Carpenter's The Thing, it, it's clearly all of it is exposed. 
I think that's because I think the idea there, and maybe it's not executed that well, is is that they blew the they they blew the ice off to get it to what you see in John Carpenter's thing, where you do see it revealed. No. I, th- I I I no. think that's the no. that's what they're going for. No. Um, it, 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 you know, uh, I'm not saying, uh, even though I'm sort of defending it, I no. am not saying that it's it's anywhere near the, the John Carpenter's film. All I'm saying is I I find it an okay companion piece um, uh, to to his film. Um, you, you know, I, you know me, I'm a great stickler with continuity stuff, and um, you, you, you know they've been quite respectful and and haven't changed you know too much with this so um you, you, you know it is what it is but definitely i agree with you adding the cgi um is a kind of a shame because it, that's that's one of the yeah. things that does make it look different um to, to what we saw in the in in what comes afterwards um i did like the little tie-in at the end with the playing the morricone music and having the helicopter which you know they've got the same helicopter and all the same stuff so i mean they've, they've done that quite well but again we know where it's going we know where it's going so yeah yeah it, that that bit really felt tacked on they, they it did feel like oh shit we're supposed to connect these two films. We've got to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, because again, it had no rhyme or reason for that helicopter turning up just as that dog's yeah. escaping. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it, compared to some, it was, it was a cash in. It was a, it's a cash in. I mean, the end of the day, that film was just made so that they could keep the title, the thing. And also just let's try and make some more money. They, there was no heart. There's no, you know, I, no, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say the director wasn't trying to make a good film, but it just felt that it was too much studio interference, and it was just made for the wrong reasons. And calling it the thing only only um, caused confusion, to be honest, mm. because it's exactly the same title, and it's like, is it? Yeah. Pe- people yeah. weren't sure if it was a remake or or what. And I mean, you know, it, it, it is a definite prequel um, set several days before the events of carpenter's film but um but anyway you know we're here to talk about carpenter so i don't want to linger too much on on this one Uh, all i can say is i hear what you're saying um i don't hate it but at the same time you know you can it's it's an unnecessary film if i wanted to be cruel about it yeah yeah i mean it's um I know every time I hear that they're remaking Escape from Ugh. New York, it always kind of well they've done that me, once yeah, already. It was uh, called Escape from LA, <laughs> and, and like you said, when it's and they they had the real Snake Plissken, and it still didn't work. <laughs> yeah, you know, every time you hear who the casting's going to be, you're like, oh dear, I roll. <laughs> Gerard that was Butler. The last oh, I God. heard, but I I haven't been keeping tabs on that. I mean, again, that would be that would be fucking with one of my um one of my you know favorite films from my uh from my childhood so um yeah <laughs> same here so you know it's it's one remake i would like not to be seen i mean i i think had the thing 2011 been a remake i'd have been really pissed off but i think because they tried to do a prequel even though essentially a lot of the same things happen you know i haven't got so much of a problem with it it's not like they're trying to a race carpenters film that was the only good thing about it that they didn't they didn't want it because it is 
I mean, when the, when it came out, it was just bad timing that it came out against ET. Carpenters, yeah, no, absolutely, yes, yes. Worst timing, and so it's that whole again when we were talking about Event Horizon, we had Contact come out at the same time. So you had like so in this case, you had like the you know the lovely ET, you know the lovely alien, and then you had the horrible alien with the thing, and of course people would want to go and see you know the family friendly alien the thing um the thing <laughs> no et <laughs> wish but they should have seen the thing the et which which result which was also a a universal you know a you audience so anyone could see it whereas yeah. but i think this has been the story of john carpenter's life is that he has always his films have always sort of been ahead of their time so when they've come out they haven't done very well at the box office and you know i think that's part of the reason why there was kind of a, a down dip in the middle of his career. Okay. Which leads us nicely yeah. to... <laughs> to movie hell! <laughs> so, um, my pick for okay. movie hell is Village of the Damned. <laughs> okay, which I have to confess I've, I've seen, um, but not, not, not in any recent years. And... Um, you know, I mean, I actually like the people involved in it. It's got Christopher Reeve and Kirstie Alley, right? And uh, Mark Hamill. Oh, wow. Okay, I forgot Mark Hamill, wasn't it? Brilliant. He plays the priest. And uh, you have uh, Michael Paré in there as well from um, Streets of Fire. Wow. And uh, all of them are wasted. <laughs> now, I remember seeing the 1950s original um, I actually came home early one day from school um, and it was on BBC Two. And I remember sitting this and being absolutely riveted by this film. So when this, I heard there was a remake made by John Carpenter, I was like, fuck yeah, I'm there. <laughs> uh, we rented this on video and I just remember going, what the fuck? You know, I, I hadn't watched it for quite a long time. And... Um, so I I went back and watched it, and it's a mess of a film. It's one of those films which trying to explain too much. Oh, really? It's just not. In some ways, I actually laughed at it. Um, <laughs> you because... laugh, Simon. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I think it shouldn't have been hilarious, but the bit when Christopher Reeve's wife is killed by one of the children who's only a toddler was hilarious where she doesn't get killed. She has, to, she puts her hand into boiling water into like a, a pot of boiling water. Cause the, the child seems to be unhappy with uh, its food. Uh, it was just hilarious. And, and when Christopher Reeve comes in and grabs her arm, she puts, she plows it back in and it's just like, <laughs> uh, well, um, yeah. Cause it's based on a story called the Midwich cuckoos by John Wyndham. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so they've actually said it in Midwich, USA. Right. And they the, the whole bit where the town uh, are all knocked out and the, you can see it from outside because um, the police and the, you know, all the all the people have turned up quickly because they think it might be some sort of chemical um, attack. And, you know, you see these two, this copper with a line on him being, he walks over this white line they painted 
because it's obviously there's kind of, there's an area that's affected and there's an area that isn't. And you see him take a couple of steps and he just collapses and they drag him back and he sort of wakes up. So they can tell there's this whole area. It happens though, um, I think in the original film, that effect lasted longer uh, in, in movie time than it did in this in this film. It, in the film, it was like, I believe it was like six hours because when they all collapse, it's 10 o'clock. You see a clock says 10 o'clock and then next thing you know, it's four o'clock. And they have like, it's, it happens mostly at a barbecue and you see all the main characters there and they all faint. And there's this wonderful bit where you see a guy fall on, a bar, on the barbecue and then so when they all wake up, he is, he's extra crispy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Absolutely extra crispy. Um, and then, of course, they find out that every woman in the, um, in the town is pregnant. It's this weird thing where, because Kirstie Alley's this character, she's working for the government. She's, she knows more than she's letting on. And, you know, she does this thing where she says, if you go through your pregnancy, we'll give you $1,000. And everybody's like, oh, okay. Because they have this scene, they have like this uh, village meeting scene. And I, again, I was like, oh, just a bit like um, Blazing Saddles. I was expecting sort of cows to walk through and they're all really angry. And then Kirsty Alley says, oh, we'll give you a thousand pounds. And everybody's like, hmm, okay. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and also the um, spoiler, the aliens, because this is the thing with the original film, you didn't know. You didn't know what the effect is, but um, but in this film, they tried to they, explain they, it, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. That was that was the problem. They were trying to explain the mystery, and one of the ba so that all the parents or the mothers have this dream of them loving their child, and it's all sort of blue and glowing and very sort of you know I'm being abducted. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pregnant kind of thing. Right. And they're all very happy. So so quite interesting then. This is another film then that is a a remake of another film that comes from a a, a novel source material. Mm -hmm. And um whereas obviously we're we're talking about how the thing has really worked. Yeah. In this particular instance, this is this is where he's tried this and it really hasn't worked. Yeah. Well, the thing about the thing is that he's not remade the film. He hasn't gone back and made the Howard Hawks the thing. He's gone back and he's gone back to the book. To the novel, yeah. And they've also, yeah, and they've also come back to the fact that um, they came up with this wonderful idea that the alien was a shapeshifter. But not only a shapeshifter, but it just took on that... The, you know, whatever it copied. Yeah, well, interestingly... So it, so it wasn't... It was never just one shape, was it? it no. Was I mean, interestingly, I, I heard, um, again, another C that we can do it sometime, but, our, our, you know, we're always mentioning him because we love him, but James Cameron, um, yes. I heard him say that originally, uh, when he was doing the first Terminator movie, when he was developing that, he had the idea of, like, the T-1000 shape-shifting um, Terminator from... Terminator 2 at the time but you know a the technology wasn't there but b the other thing because they kind of already done this in the thing he sort of shied yeah. away from that and went for the more sort of traditional cyborg um you, you know robot under skin thing that we end up with in that film but then saying that I remember his artwork the one he because he 
um, Terminator came from the fact that he had a fevered dream while making Piranha 2. Who wouldn't, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it was always the endoskeleton coming out the fire. Exactly. I I mean, where did you hear that? Well, I I saw it in an interview, and and you're absolutely right. The endoskeleton was always going to be there. You know, that was always the thing. But I think the idea was that what ended up being the Kyle Reese character, okay, was much as in the second film was going to be oh, um, okay you know uh, a sort of uh, polymenic alloy or whatever he's <laughs> calling it you, you never know with these stories how much of them are sort of wives tales and how much of them are true yeah. and i think as a caveat to any listeners you know we always say that you know we're, we're not experts we're not the authority on this we're just giving sort of our opinion and yeah. things we've we're learned fans. over the years yeah we're fans we're fans exactly. and we're, we're geeks. talking about <laughs> yeah and you know we're just talking about the things we like yeah but um yeah it was just very it was very close to the original film right and it wasn't i i don't think it went back to the um source material i don't even you know i don't even i have to say i don't Annoyingly, I don't even remember the original film, so I, I need to maybe do a double bill sometime and yeah. compare and contrast. I don't know. I, I well, if you want to do that, if you want to put yourself through that misery, then uh, go ahead. Well, you know, I put, I put myself through worse. Because one of the problems is that one of the children we are supposed to feel sorry for, he is starting to have feelings, and this is the one that belongs to um, the actress from Crocodile Dundee. Oh, Linda Kowalski, is it? Yes, that's yeah. right. She, um, her, her son, his partner is missing, so he doesn't have that connection. He is the outcast within that group. He never kills anybody. He's always he, he's always looking on. He's never sort of part of it, or he's always the one that's being shouted at by the leader of the group, which is Christopher Reeve's daughter. And um, so you have this thing where you know you have this. You're, you're starting you're feeling sorry for one of them which you never had with the other story it was always they were like outsiders you know with the blonde hair and and also the glowing eyes in this film we have glowing eyes and oh boy do they glow they glow different colors they start off with green and then they go to red and then they go to bright white so they had the same ending as the original films where christopher reeve's character is the teacher and he's he's blocking them because he's got a bomb in a in a suitcase um, in a satchel, sorry, and he's, he's 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 sacrificing himself to kill these these creatures, even though there's an airstrike planned to destroy the the, the town anyway. Because throughout the world there have been these colonies popping up where you know it got so bad where these you know the the children. We're turning against all the sort of different villages, towns, wherever they were, that, you know, the, whoever Kirsty Alley was working for or their government would destroy that town just to destroy them. And the same was going to happen. But you don't see it. It's, you know, it's kind of talked about, but, you know, you, you never see it. It's not like the end of Resident Evil Apocalypse where you see the city destroyed after uh, Umbrella bombs the seeds nothing like that but it's the same kind of, you think the same thing's going to happen it's just it really just doesn't work it's just uh the actors are really wasted i mean right. yeah you've got mark hamill in there who was really terrific in body bags which is the film he did which john carpenter did with toby hooper before this 
he was in the Mark Hamill was in the story about the baseball player who loses his eye, and it's replaced with the eye from a killer, right? And it starts taking him over. Brilliant performance, you know. Yet in in this, just totally wasted. Yeah, no, Mark Hamill's great. I mean, I was delighted this week to see him crop up in in The Flash as the trickster character. Oh, brilliant. And I was just like, I mean, you know, he was doing it with an absolute slab of ham, but it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you could tell he had some. Well, fun he did doing in the, the original TV series. That's right. I mean, his episodes were the best. Uh, Warner Brothers, they did the pilot for The Flash as uh, like a standalone video, and then they did Mark Hamill's appearances as one set, was on one tape. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I remember that. I never actually saw them, but I, I remember them being in the um, video store. No, it was fun. He was he was the highlight of that show. Yeah. And so it's great to see him in the new Flash. And also the actor who plays the Flash's father in the new show is... Is Barry Allen. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the guy who was... Yeah, John Wesley Ship. I think the actor's name is. And he played, yeah, the, the original ba- Barry Allen and now is playing Henry Allen. God, what a nerd I am. Sorry. Um, <laughs> back to uh, back to children. Um, uh, sorry, Village of the Dam, though. Um, I'm assuming looking at the, the dates of this, that this was literally the last film that Christopher Reeve did before his uh, horrible accident. Is, is, yes. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. That's true. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It, it's not a film to go out on. Right. Um, it's probably a bit better than uh, Superman 4 Quest for Peace. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. There's a whole other story there. But yes, no, I, I hear Yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the other things I, I, why I didn't like it was watching that and thinking he, he's, he is doing his best in it. And it's I don't think, I don't know if he's right for the part for a start. Right. He should have been. I mean, he's a very good actor. He's a very good Juilliard-trained actor, and you yeah, know, really. Yeah, it's just, and I've I've seen him in other stuff. Um, somewhere in time, I thought he was great in. Oh, I love that. Oh, oh my God, that's one of my that that's another that's a film I can geek out on big time. So yes, I I hear you. <laughs> it's great. I saw it recently again, and it's just a it's a wonderful film. John Barry's wonderful score as well on that. Amazing. And so it's just a shame to sort of see him go out with a film like of this low caliber. And I, I'm afraid it is very low caliber. Oh dear. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just, it's a real shame. I, I don't know if John Carpenter was not bothered. I, I don't know if he was doing it for the money or that he had a lot of problems with the studio because it was, it was awful. It is interesting. Um, Again, the, the the very point you brought up at the beginning about how, you know, how he did sort of reach this peak fairly, fairly early in his career. And then, yeah, you know, everything did kind of just not be as good moving forward. And, you know, I mean, he pretty much stuck with the same genre um, or the same few genres all, all the way across. And you know, collaborated with a lot of the same people in some cases. So it's, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It really is weird. Yeah. It, it, it's it's interesting. Well, for a thing, I don't think he ever found uh, a, a good, as good a leading man as he did with Kurt Russell. No, actually, which is, which is quite a nice dovetail, actually, into what I'm, what I'm going to talk about as my movie hell. <laughs> <laughs> which which Go on, I, let's which I, let's do it let's okay. let's get, get through this one okay 
I'm two, 2001's uh, John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. Okay, um, I you know I couldn't remember it at all. I had seen it. I remember not being impressed when I saw it originally, which I think was at the cinema. Um, so I managed to get it at good old CEX uh, exchange for uh, like fifty pence for the DVD with all the extra features and all that. And I'm glad to be fair that I didn't pay more than fifty pence for it because. Um, the you know you, you know me i'm 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 fairly in fact i i often get told off that i'm not critical enough about films you know i always cut people too much slack and all this sort of thing really? and uh, some people say who that, says that oh i used to get <laughs> when i was at film school i used to get criticized for liking everything yeah I, but, I mean i didn't go to film school but i think if you didn't like fellini you would get criticized from what i hear well yeah sometimes i mean there's always the snobbery thing but yeah but you yeah. know um, as I said, that's the thing we do with this podcast as well is, is you know, we're not here, you know, much as we have appreciation for, for those sort of films, because, you know, cinema wouldn't be what it is without them. But at the same time, yeah. you know, we're talking about, you know, genre films and things that we love, uh, you know, growing up and whatever. But um, indeed. But but this. OK, John Carver's Ghost of Mask. Give a little bit of sort of backstory to it, first of all. And, and, and watching it, you know, sort of made sense when when. Um, when I saw this, originally this was supposed to be uh, another Snake Plissken film called Escape from Mars. Okay, that was what it was originally okay. developed as. And the thing is, because Escape from LA did not do well at all, okay, oh, tanks, it was it? decided to develop this story into into something separate and something not part of that franchise. What you've got is essentially um, a film that really doesn't work on on so many levels and was obviously a massive flop. Um, apparently, it cost twenty eight million to actually produce this film, and it only earned fourteen million, you know, worldwide box office and yeah. sales and things of that nature. Now, you know, did it deserve to do better? Well, frankly. Um, it, it it's pretty bad all round, <laughs> if I'm going to be honest. I I watched it. I watched it. I I had seen it when it come out, and I, you know, I I remember sort of. Um, I just watched Vampires, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, because James Wood and Woods in that was just it was amazing yeah. in it. He was in a different film to everybody else. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> so so I was I had high hopes for this film and. It's a mess. Yes, it is a mess. I mean, let's let's, let's start with the structure. Okay, well, here, here's the thing. I mean, I basically, I, I watched I watched the film again, and I also watched. Um, they had a few behind the scenes special features thing, although they weren't very special, to be fair. And I listened to half the commentary, but I gave up because it was basically Carpenter, bless him, flirting like hell with Natasha Henstridge and who can blame him but you know uh it really wasn't talking about the film and and they say part way through um they're recording it before the film is released and i think ah, yeah yeah little oh do you my know God, really you know at this this stage what a turkey you're going to you're going to release here um but yes structurally he talks about that in the little bit of the commentary that i did watch um between drooling he, he does talk about that and um <laughs> yeah. you know i'm not holding that against him but um it, essentially it was originally a linear film right okay and what happened was he said in post-production 
he really felt that it was very from familiar very much like you know other films he'd seen and done and no real surprise so he he cho chose to do this non-linear structure which you know i have no problem with films doing non-linear structure but in this case it really doesn't work because we start by knowing again that only Natasha Henstridge is going to survive this film and everybody else dies on Mars in this and this prison uh, colony. Yeah. All right. That's right so, yeah. you know, although it can work sometimes, it, this is really bad. But the other thing that makes it even worse is we have flashbacks within the flashbacks. Flashbacks. So, right. Now, look, tell the audience how this story is being told. Okay, basically, we're set up at the beginning that it's being told at a um, in a sort of courtroom hearing environment um, where uh, Natasha Henstridge's character uh, is is being asked to basically she's she's like a sergeant um, of this team that was that had gone to this mining outpost to transfer a prisoner, not Snake Pliskin, but a character called Desolation Williams, which is awful played by Ice Cube and, and basically she is being debriefed about what actually happened. So she's, you know, the thing is told in terms of flashback, but then, as I said, you, you end up having flashbacks within these flashbacks, which, which really doesn't work. Oh, so flashbacks about stuff she had no idea happened. Exactly. Flashbacks about things she wasn't present at. So it's like, yes, how are you able to tell that because you weren't even there? So yes. So, so straight away, Thank you, Simon. You, you've hit the nail on the head there. There's a major flaw in storytelling <laughs> right away. So it doesn't work. The other thing is, and, and you know, again, I, I, you know, I don't want to, I know that films are hard to make and there are hundreds of technicians and craft people involved in these things doing, you know, their best job, you know, that they can. But, I, it, you know, I, I was shocked to learn that like, um, uh, Greg Nicotero, who's who's big now with The Walking Dead, you know, in the in the makeup and whatever, was was involved in this, and and you know, there, there, there's some there's some good people involved in it, but it just none of none of it gels. I mean, the, the, there's not a solid performance in there. You've got Ice Cube, Natasha Henstridge, Jason Statham, you know, Pam Greer, uh, Clea Duvall, and jo Joanna Casti. They 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 try their best, but essentially they're just there to be decapitated in the story you know there, yes. there, there, there's not much going on for them ice cube is is clearly trying to do this snake pliskin thing and, and it's not working at all and what actually made me laugh this really made me laugh in terms of wardrobe whereas snake pliskin always wore the sort of white tiger striped urban camo pants right um yeah desolation williams is wearing exactly the same thing only they're red because he's on mars <laughs> <laughs> i didn't even notice oh, that no, to tell the truth i just shitty. i think i was too busy looking at the uh the black leather jacket yeah. no i mean it, 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 it's it's all of it i mean you know statham this is quite an a fairly early role for him this is pre-shaved head by the way so we're talking vastly receding hairline statham um but uh, you know he he is awful in this um as is ice cube natasha henstridge obviously looks good and you just think when she's going to get a kit off which she doesn't um but i didn't uh, mind I, I i have to say i didn't mind her. i think she's probably she's right. um 
she's 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 all right i mean she's i think she, if she was given i think that's a the problem has been that she's just not been given a role a good role she has been the the sort of you know she's there to show off her body yeah well in fairness to her she was a last minute replacement on this film and she came straight off another project to go into this project with less than a week's prep so you know i i, t- I take my hat off to her for that oh okay well good for her then and she's because she was yeah because she was probably the best thing in it yeah no absolutely i mean you know the the the, the basic idea of this film you know is is not a bad one but its execution is is really bad and you know even the action sequences in this film the fights they seem slow and really choreographed and and not particularly well done and a mess did you did you see what happened to Jason Statham and Claire Duval yeah no exactly it's I thought I missed it I rewind yeah. it and I was like what what where, where yeah. are they what happened? No. There's no death scene, nothing. They just disappeared. It's not very well done. The other thing, no. again, looking at Carpenter's career and just, here's the thing. And again, I'm not going to, you know, I, I realise that, that, that cinematography is an incredible, incredibly difficult art. You know, it's one of those jobs that's both creative and artistic, but also you know, you have to understand the science behind lighting and the mathematics of it. And it's a very technical job as well, you know, so it's difficult. But what I notice is the the early films of Carpenter, you know, the, the, the Halloweens, the Escape from New York, the, the, the Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, all of those, his, his um, cinematographer was Dean Cundy, the great Dean Cundy, who's worked with Spielberg and, you know, done some amazing films and Zemeckis and, you know, all of those great guys. I noticed this is the same DOP that did Village of the Damned, which is um, Gary B. Kibbe. Yeah, I, I had to say I had I had a few problems with some. Uh, they for one thing, Village of the Damned did look like a TV movie. Yes, there were some odd choices in lenses. Um, they used a lot of fish-eyed lenses for external shots of houses, so you kind of had this bowing effect. Okay, which okay. I, I can see them going, yeah, this would be, this, you know, so things look a bit askew and a bit off, but it just doesn't work. It just didn't, it doesn't, it, it wasn't portraying anything. It just was a bad choice. In right. Yeah. I was going to say, if you're going to do an effect like that, it has to be to, you know, for a reason and to make the audience feel a certain way or, or, or project a certain thing. And yeah, sometimes, um, you know these things don't work i mean ghost ghost from mars lighting wise for me was just too lit if you know what i mean it did look like a sort of 80s yeah. video in fact it looked like a film made from a different era than 2001 um it's it, it, it's obviously it's the red planet so everything was dyed red and they filmed it outside in the desert in in new mexico and they shot it all at night for everything and whatever. And I appreciate, you know, the, it's, these things aren't easy to pull off. But I, I don't know. It really, you know, on no level did this film, in my opinion, really work at all. I mean, even the soundtrack, you know, which Carpenter did with Anthrax and some others, it, it didn't have like a, a theme that you could remember or hum along to or anything like that. And then as for the ending, it had this most cheeseball, 
tacked on ending <laughs> where you know th- this whole this whole story's oh, yeah. happened and 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 the court tribunal briefing thing is over and you see Natasha wake up and and obviously I'm sure they 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 put this in a bit for the legs and whatever and you know get get dressed and and whatever and then you see Desolation Williams come in and he gives her a gun and they go right yeah let's go kick some more ash shall we and it's really it's like I was like <laughs> what you know so so this is definitely for me um this was definitely Carpenter's low point and interestingly uh, I read an yeah. interview since and this was the film that met, he said that he felt burnt out on and made him not make another movie for nine years. So quite interesting. Yeah. That. <laughs> I I've, I have to admit, I have not seen The Ward and I just, mm. I don't know what it is about, but it's just, I don't want yeah, to. Yeah, I saw it, but it's not, it's not memorable. Let's put it that way. It, it's... Yeah. I mean, I, I have seen uh, both the episodes he did for Masters of Horror, which he made after Ghosts of Mars. Right, which I have not, I must admit. I need to catch those at some point. Cigarette Burns, really good. A real return to form. Pro-life, no, that was that was just bad. So you kind of got like both kinds of carpenter. You got good carpenter, bad carpenter. So if you're going to watch any of those, I would re- highly recommend Cigarette Burns. Give pro-life a miss. You, you're, you're not going to miss anything. It was a great idea, you know, but uh, I think just not executed very well. And um, I, I, if I might watch The Ward at some point, just out of curiosity. Well, it's the same with this. I mean, the concept of this about, you know, um, essentially spirits being released from a, a sealed temple on Mars, yeah, that, that basically take over the people in the mining community and sort of turn them into sort of vampire killer type zombie type things well no, not no, vampire. yeah they're sort of more zombies things. they're kind of i mean there's there's a um natasha um henstrich she gets uh taken over isn't she and and the drugs she's been taking have been <laughs> help her fight off the the evil spirits which again is a bit weak but yeah it's... you see what these ghosts actually look like and so what they're trying to do is turn themselves through mutilation back into what they look like as aliens. Cause the main guy looks like the yeah. head alien. And we yeah. see this flashback. Which, which looks like a member of kiss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He does indeed. <laughs> you ready to rock? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, it's really hard because I, I was, when I was watching it, I was trying to look at something in it to 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 say something good about you know because as i said there are there are some good people involved in this um you know actors and and yeah. and filmmaker people um crew and whatever but um you know it's really hard to find out anything good about this like you said if i had to say something it would be probably natasha um it was a flop and it kind of deserved to be really it's no better than a sort of tv or straight to DVD, um, you know, sci-fi movie. Well, it felt like a homage to a John Carpenter film. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It did. It felt like Assault Precinct 13 on Mars, with, as you say, a touch of Escape from New York. But I thought the the script they wanted to do 
uh, following Escape from New York, uh, sorry, from Escape from LA was Escape from Earth, which, funny enough, uh, was very similar to um, Fortress Two and oh that guy Pierce oh uh, lockdown. Okay, well I mean I'm I'm looking here on I'm just while we were talking about this I just got it up here on um, Wikipedia and I know obviously you can't believe everything you read on Wikipedia but it basically says here. That the, the script originally started off as a potential Snake Plissken sequel entitled Escape from Mars. The story would have been largely much the same. However, after Escape from LA failed to make much money at the box office, the studio did not w- wish to make another Plissken mu- m- movie. Snake Plissken was then changed to Desolation Williams, and the studio also insisted that Ice Cube be given the part because I believe, and again, it's not saying it here, but I believe that originally, Jason Statham was was in line to actually play that part, but at the time he wasn't big enough box office, um, so that they they changed it to Ice Cube. Yeah, the, that's that's correct. I'm looking at I'm looking at IMDb right. now, and uh, Natasha Henstridge replaced Courtney Love. That's right. Yes, yes, and um, came in very last minute, and she'd done two other pitches back to back. So um, you know, my hats off to her for for, for dialing in the performance she did really. Um, and you know this is quite a physical film, but 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 you know the the, the action, the stunts, the cinematography, the the score, the, the acting, none of it was really up to par at all. And 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 if John Carpenter said that he was burnt out, I think it shows in this film. Although when he was recording the commentary, he certainly didn't feel that way at the time. <laughs> so interesting. Well, no, he was too busy Indeed. flirting. I just want to I just want to read this out because I think this is uh, um, personally quite um, I, I well I, I'm going to read this out in a 2006 interview Ice Cube nominated this as the worst movie he had appeared in calling it unwatchable in many <laughs> ways John Carpenter really let us down with the special effects on that one it looked like something out of a film from 1979 there you go well okay Ice Cube uh, yeah, you didn't like it, though. A bit harsh. It is though, quite it? harsh, but then harsh. I don't think it's the just the special effects that let you down. <laughs> I think some of the blame can go on yeah. you, mate. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, he he's not good in it. That's but, for sure. Yeah, and um... no, no, this is it's it's a terrible film. But I just. Uh, to, just because he felt the special effects were bad, obviously that was going to let it fail. <laughs> you know, and, and and again, you know, you know, I, I don't want to sort of take anything away from some of the craftspeople that do these things, but you know, I, overall, it, it's not very good. Yes, I wouldn't be surprised if they had um, the time for shooting um, cut down. It's usually the case. They never have enough time to sort of do effects or or maybe even come up. Well, I mean, you know, when we talked about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and I was kind of giving Soldier a hard time. um, Sorry, not Paul Thomas Anderson. Paul W.S. W.S. Sorry. W.S. Um, (laughs) I was giving Soldier a hard time. I mean, you you know, Soldier is is much, much better than than Ghosts of Mars. So yeah, yeah, that that's my movie yeah. movie hell uh, for Carpenter. Yes. Well, thank you for joining us for this uh, our longest yet episode. Oh, is it? How long have we been going? I've I've no idea. I've lost all track of time. Well, it's it's been longer than Timber. Oh really? Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So um, if you're interested to uh, see more of my work, uh, you can go to uh, independentrunnings.com or if you go to YouTube, just put in uh, independent runnings and you can find Keith's work at... Yeah, you will be able to find Keith's work on uh, YouTube also at British Isles, but Isles spelled as my surname, which is E-Y-L-E-S, okay? Um, uh, I, I'm soon to be putting on um, short films that I've made on there, so you can look at that, comment, um, share... Uh, get in touch, whatever, you know, I, I really don't mind. So, <laughs> yes, no, it's it's good to hear you've got a, a YouTube page. I'm working on it. Yes. Certainly check it yes. out. Uh, and one other thing I'd like to do just at the end here. And, um, you, you know, we talk more about this on the, on the extras, but um, I just say that, you know, we're recording this um, on, on, on April 9th, uh, 2015 and I'd like to uh, dedicate the episode to um, a, a, a teacher, a mentor, uh, and, a, and a friend uh, of mine that was sadly um, lost this week. Uh, his name is Ralph Clemente, um, a producer of many, many films, um, and many people that are working in the film industry today had been taught and trained and inspired by this man. Um, one being uh, David Nutter, who, who who I've talked about before, who's um, you, you know currently uh, an Emmy Award-winning uh, television director, having done things like Band of Brothers, The Pacific, Entourage, Game of Thrones. Uh, he's the um, consulting producer on on Arrow and the executive producer on The Flash, and and, and amongst many other things dating back to X Files. Um, sadly, uh, as I said, Ralph um, died uh, this this week um, quite suddenly, and uh, you know I feel very sad about this. So I'd like to dedicate this episode in his memory. <laughs>